Let's take our Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Acts chapter number 4. Acts chapter number 4. And as we uh, turn there, we open to the pages and we have for us recorded the first persecution ever that was endured by the first century church. Uh, And is recorded for us here in Acts chapter uh, number 4. Uh, if you remember what had happened in Acts chapter number 3, a man who was lame from his uh, mother's, uh, from birth, from his mother's womb, was now leaping and praising God. And a throng of people had gathered around uh, Peter and John, and a message was preached uh, subsequent to the gathering of the people. And uh, the message was very simple. It was a message about Jesus Christ. And we saw that in chapter 2, we see that repeated in chapter 3, and now we come to chapter number 4, and we notice the reaction of what happened as a result of what had taken place in Acts 3. Notice Acts 4, verse 1, and as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, asked, By what power, or by what name, have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it, But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath uh, hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. 
We come to our text, as I mentioned, and this is the first persecution that we find arising against the New Testament church. We certainly see persecution of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Before that, we see the persecution of the prophets uh, all the way back from the beginning. If you think about it, the first example of that is Abel himself. And so the persecution of the righteous has always been manifest, but I believe that we can learn some things as we come to Acts chapter number 4 and learn from this first persecution against the church. And what we learn right off the bat is the persecution arose based on two things that had happened. A miracle had just taken place, and all the people were marveling at the miracle But secondly, what was more more disturbing to them was the message that accompanied the miracle. And if you think about Acts chapter number 4, the direct opposition is not against the miracle. They admit, according to verse number 16, indeed a notable miracle, and their admission is, we cannot deny it. They cannot deny the miracle. But what are they going to do? Verse 17 and 18 tells us that they spake henceforth to no man in this name and they commanded them in verse number 18 not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. I want to preach a little while as we think about the persecution and we're going to concentrate in this message on the persecutors. Those who persecuted Peter and John in this account. And I want to ask this question. Why the persecution of Peter and John? What basis? Why did they do that based upon a good that was done? And I I think we can summarize uh, this chapter and the reason for persecution with, with one word. And that would be the word unbelief. They could not deny the miracle. But what is it that they tried to stop? The teaching and the preaching of Jesus. That's what they tried to stop. I was reading one preacher from the 18th century who, uh, who wrote this, or the 1800s. He says, there is nothing new about unbelief. It is as old as the preaching of the gospel. People today who are not Christian think that they are not Christian because they are modern. Because they live in the 21st century. Is that not how they put it? What? They say, you still believe that? You mean to say that in these enlightened times you are a Christian and go to church? It is quite ridiculous to think that the, harm, that the hallmark of modernity is the rejection of the gospel. Unbelief is as old as the gospel itself. So if you are not a Christian, do not claim that you are being modern. You are ancient. Very ancient indeed. I want to preach a little while this morning on the ancient condition of unbelief. The ancient condition of unbelief. That preacher, furthermore, that message, he said this. He said, the greatest tragedy in the world is not the nuclear bomb, but... Humanity's rejection of the gospel. And as we come to this chapter, we are really overwhelmed by the sense of what brought about this great persecution as we 
read the reply of Peter. He says in verse number 8, as he's filled with the Holy Ghost, he said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole. In other words, we find Peter and John both had done a wonderful thing. Wasn't it wonderful that a man who was lame from birth, who had never had the joy of ever walking in his life, who was carried to the beautiful gate of the temple daily to ask alms of those who would go in and out of the temple, we would think that the entirety of Jerusalem would rejoice. We would think that the, uh, the, the, the entirety of the group of people, would, even the elders and the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the uh, captain of the guard and all those people would rejoice and say, what a wonderful thing. But that's not what happened. Isn't it perplexing that as we read throughout the entirety of really human history, that when wonderful things happened, they are always opposed particularly when they are attached to the Lord. And here, being attached to the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth is revealed for us in chapter 4. If you notice with me in verse number 4, after what had happened, the priests and the Sadducees and the scribes, all these people are disturbed. Why? Because notice verse 4, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, And the number of the men was about 5,000. I want to submit to you that that is what disturbed the religious leaders of the day. The miracle did not disturb them. Uh, What disturbed them was the message. And I want us to see here that the 5,000 people that the Bible says believe, notice, they did not believe in the miracle. What they believe, the Bible says, is the word that they heard. That is what they believed. And so we would say that the opposite of what these men did, these 5,000 men that believed, the opposite of that are, are those who stand in opposition who would say, did not believe. They rejected, not the miracle, for they could not deny it, they rejected and denied the message. Why? Because of unbelief. And so I want us to learn something from this passage about unbelief. I want to preach a little while on the ancient condition of unbelief. Let us not be disturbed by the trend of the world that says, hey, we are in the 21st century. Now we have scientific knowledge. We have all those things. And uh, therefore... In this modern age, it is the common thing to do, the right thing to do, the common sense thing to do, to reject the gospel message, to reject this Jesus Christ, because we are, after all, in the 21st century, and that's what what modern men do. They are skeptical. They remain in unbelief. But I tell you, that is not a new idea. As a matter of fact, it's been there since the very beginning when the gospel was first preached. And I want us to notice a few truths from that this morning. I want you to consider, first of all, we see the conduct of unbelief. The conduct of unbelief. What we find in this passage is the response to really not the miracle, but really the preaching and the fact that there were 5,000 people that believed. And the conduct, the response is quite revealing. There are three things 
that they opposed, if you were, three things by way of conduct that they did towards uh, uh, what they opposed because of their unbelief. And by the way, that is always the conduct of unbelief. What is their conduct? Number one, we see they opposed the message. In verse number two, the Bible tells us that the, right, the people, the priest, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, notice verse 2, being grieved that they taught the people. The Bible says, and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So we find here that these people, and among them is named the Sadducees, and we'll talk about them in just a little while, but we know here that the Sadducees, they were grieved, because uh, Peter and John were teaching the people, and they were also furthermore preaching through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so we find here a group of people who are opposing the message. Now, the reason why I pointed out the Sadducees is because the Sadducees were known to be unbelievers, generally speaking, but particularly who vehemently opposed the resurrection. They didn't believe in any resurrection at all. As a matter of fact, we'll see a little later that they did not believe in life after death. They believed that when a person dies, that was the end of it. They incorporated the Greek philosophy into the Jewish culture, and thereby they were denying that. And so what they opposed here, they were grieved because the people were being taught, and there was preaching about Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And so therefore, the message was opposed. And what they would do is, again, the... The idea here is connecting the Sadducees to the resurrection is that, well, the resurrection, that's something that is unreasonable to believe. That was always the position of the Sadducees. That's not reasonable for you to believe in such a doctrine. It's not reasonable for you to to say and to preach that Jesus was God in the flesh, that Jesus was the Son of God. It is not reasonable for you to say that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. All of those things are, uh, you know, beyond the scope of what is, uh, uh, I guess you could say, common sense. These things do not happen. We deny those miracles. We deny uh, life after death. We oppose the message, and they did so on the basis of always this. It's ridiculous. Well, look, the world hasn't changed at all. As a matter of fact, since the beginning of the preaching of the gospel, the opposition was saying, no, there's no such thing as the resurrection. Are you a fool to believe such a thing? The world is still saying the same thing. You're a fool to believe in the resurrection. You're a fool to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You're a fool to believe that God has come in the flesh. You're a fool to believe that uh, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And so the conduct of unbelief is always to oppose the message of the gospel. Secondly, they ostracized the messengers. You see what they did in verse number 3? And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. So it was in the evening, and so they uh, did not like this teaching, they did not like this preaching, and they saw that there was these people who were believing, and the number that is given to us in the Word of God is 5,000, that is quite a significant number, yet still a minority in Jerusalem, a minority of people, 
Uh, but we find here that as they're teaching and preaching, the only thing that they think that they can do that is within their power is not to debate with them, is not to reason with them, but is to ostracize them, to lay hands on them, and to basically, if you would, in a physical sense, to shut them up. Now, uh, some people say today, well, look at Christianity and the persecution around the world and look at people who are being ostracized and jailed and all those things. Uh, uh, what's happening in the 21st century? I tell you what's always happened since the gospel was first preached. Because when people are believing a message and when people are hearing the message of the gospel, the opposition, those who stand in unbelief, find that the only recourse is for them to ostracize the messengers, to cut them off, to separate them from the people. And by the way, we find that done in secular society, but we also find that done in religious society. Now these were religious people who ostracized the messengers, but again as you study church history, that is what churches have always done. The Roman Catholic Church, what did they do? They could not stop the message of the gospel from propagating. And so what they did is they ostracized the messengers. They would go from village to village. They would kill those who would preach the gospel. Anybody who was found with a Bible in their possession was burned at the stake, was drowned. The families who refused to baptize their infants through the sprinkling that was done in the Roman Catholic Church were, uh, were uh, put, a, a rock was uh, was uh, uh, tied to their neck and they were thrown in rivers. And so uh, that has always been the response of those who have been in this position of unbelief to the gospel. They've always ostracized the messengers. And by the way, I think it is clearly noted as we think about the progression of our country that we are soon approaching a time when the messengers of the gospel will be ostracized and separated from their congregations and separated from the message, and uh, their voice that goes through the uh, lines of the internet, and all those things will be silenced. It's coming soon. But, it is not a new conduct. That is the conduct of unbelief, and it's always been that way. So we see that they oppose the message, they ostracize the messengers, but thirdly, they overlook the miracle. Uh, perhaps as we read verse 7, we come to verse 7, and the Bible says, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? I think that is an interesting question, but you see what they're concerned about here. They are concerned by saying basically as it was done in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Are you doing that by the power of the devil? Are you doing that by the power of God or perhaps by some sorcery, by your own power? Uh, what is it the power that gives you, that? that what, where, where does your power come from? Uh, and uh, by what power, by what name have you done this? And I'm thinking all along here, it doesn't seem to be the right question. As a matter of fact, they were confronting them who had done the miracle, but remember, what did they oppose? What grieved them was that they were teaching and preaching. The miracle per se did not grieve them. What grieved them was the message that followed the miracle. And I believe that we find a beautiful picture here as we think about the lame man who was lame from his mother's womb. He never walked in his life. He was in a condition where he could not help himself. And because of Jesus Christ, we see that this man was uh, made whole and he could walk and now he was praising God for what God had done in his life. And I think that there's a likeness today as we think about the uh, Christian world and those who stand in this condition of unbelief 
believe as they look at the Christian world and they look at someone who perhaps whose life was uh, lived, uh, whose life was lived in sinfulness, who was uh, a, a drunk or who was a, an addict or whatever category you may put upon, upon that person's life and the world looks at somebody's life like that and they see that that person has believed the gospel and then they see that that life has been transformed by the power of the gospel and what they come about is saying by, wow, by what power or what gives you the right you see uh, can he do this on his own why do you have to bring about the message of the gospel and what the world always does in unbelief is they overlook what has happened in people's lives they overlook the change that has happened because of the gospel they overlook what the transformation that has happened in the lives of people because of the gospel and they try to uh, basically overlook what's happened to be able to criticize the message that is always the conduct of unbelief. It opposes the message, it ostracizes the messengers, and it overlooks the miracles. But secondly, I want us to consider as we think about the ancient condition of unbelief, we see the conduct of unbelief, but also we consider the commonality of unbelief. I want us to, if you can, uh, let's all go together in that first century and accompany John and Peter and think about the scene and how it is all laid out there. We know that Peter and John were about to go into the temple to pray and they met the uh, man who was lame and they made him whole and now they're in the temple. He is leaping and praising God that the throng of people that comes around him and they're marveling and now they begin to teach and they begin to preach Jesus Christ and the resurrection and all those things and it is a wonderful message and now all of a sudden the Bible says there's a really a group of people that comes along in opposition, and I want you to notice who they are. Verse 1, the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. I want you to go with me down to verse number 5, and it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Now I want you to think about this crowd. If we stand here with Peter and John, they basically stand in the midst, and you see a throng of people all around them. All of these people that we mentioned, uh, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, uh, the scribes, the high priest, John and Alexander, and then as many as were the kindred of the high priest. Do you see this scene? Let me describe for you this scene if you would. The priests were known as common priests who had daily duties in the temple. Priests were divided into different companies that would rotate. Each company would minister at the temple for a week at a time, and they were divided in such categories that their any given company would minister in the temple once every six months. So you can imagine when the priests are gathered, the amount of people who are gathered in that room. The priests are gathered, there's a great group of them gathered there who were performing the uh, duties of the temple. So at this moment, think about it, everything that goes on in the temple daily stopped at that moment. And all the priests come in that room who were typically involved in the duties of the temple and now they're paused and they all come in 
as they gathered together. Not only do we see the priest, we also see the captain of the temple. This man was the, basically the leader and the organizer of Levites whose role was to keep the temple um, basically protected, but also primarily in order so that no one would come and disturb the order of the daily rituals. This rank was basically just under the high priest. Then you have this group called the Sadducees. Now, that is the most interesting group. These were known as basically wealthy politicians. That's who they were. They weren't primarily religious as much as they were politicians. They would interact with leaders of other countries. They were known to be dishonest and would often scheme and plot behind the scenes as they did when they accused Jesus Christ. The Sadducees were called religious, but in truth, they were not religious at all all. They were only interested in the religious aspect of society for political expediency and not for personal desire. In truth, they were indifferent to spiritual matters. That is America. Every two years, people come around and they raise money and they raise funds and they run for office and the vast majority of them, and I do not say that lightly, the vast majority of them use religion for political expediency. They have no interest in religion at all, nor God or the Word of God. Well, that's not a new group. It's always been that way. And we see that in the Sadducees. One commentator put it this way, he says... It moves me with a righteous indignation to see men and women attending religious services on certain official occasions who never darken the doors of a place of worship at any other time. Church attendance is part of the game. Political opportunism. They are making use of religion. That was the great characteristic of the Sadducees. We know that the Sadducees, study a little bit about them, they rejected the resurrection of the body. They rejected the idea of a future punishment or hell. They taught that a person's death was the end. They did not believe in the spiritual realm at all. They were materialistic in their priorities. That's who they were. So do you see that scene already? There's priests there who are performing daily in the temple. Not only the priests, there's the captain of the guard. There's also the Sadducees that are there who are primarily a political group. Then if we read down, the Bible tells us in verse number 5, there were scribes as well. These were basically known as teachers of the law. They were experts in particularly the oral traditions, not just the Mosaic law uh, in uh, the first five books of the Bible, uh, but also the oral traditions that had been passed down by their forefathers. The scribes belonged to the group that we call the Pharisees. And we find the Pharisees confronted throughout the gospel records as the Pharisees and Jesus Christ often called them hypocrites. They were at the opposite spectrum of the Sadducees. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the judgment. They believed in the spiritual realm. Uh, but we know that they were Pharisees. They were hypocrites. We would say that the Pharisees were those who were staunch observers of the law externally, while the Sadducees, so they wanted really to hold on to the Mosaic law, to the law of Moses, they studied the scriptures, they gave the scriptures to, or they taught the scriptures and the oral tradition to the people, but on this end, the Sadducees were more of a political party, they were uh, up with the times, they were more modern, they want to incorporate the Greek 
culture into the Jewish society system. Uh, we call that Hellenization, which is the Greek influence that came into the Roman Empire, but also continued here into the Jewish country at that time. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees were always at odds. But here they are, standing together. The Bible tells us not only are the scribes and the Sadducees there, the Bible says, the verse number 6, Annas and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. Now, the high priest here, this was his job basically to preside. So what's happening there, you see, what is that called? What do we sum up this group of people? It is summed up as the Sanhedrin Council. That's who they were. And the high priest would preside over this Sanhedrin council. He was just another Sadducee. Annas, who is mentioned first, and Caiaphas here are named together. However, there was only one high priest. You say, well, why are two mentioned? Well, history shows us that Annas had been removed by the Romans. And Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law, had been put in his stead, but the Jews still regarded Annas as the high priest. So that's why they were still, both of them, present there. One, if you would, was a political figure, and the other one was primarily the religious uh, 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 one who stood in prominence to the Jews. Two other names are mentioned, which, as we do the research in verse number 6, and John and Alexander, and... (laughs) I'll be honest with you, I don't know nothing about John and Alexander. The only thing I could find during that time, there was an Alexandria, uh, Alexander Lysimachus. In the history books during that time, he actually was known as one of the wealthiest Jews of the time. His, uh, he consistently gave to the temple and was respected by King Agrippa. Therefore, he would possibly fit well into this scene. He is named, and we know nothing about him in the Bible, but in history we know of one Alexander who was a wealthy Jew who had a relationship with those in the temple, but also was part of the political scene. That fits well within that scene right there. Now, John, as for John, I really couldn't find anything about John. There's nothing in my research that I found about him. However, he was most likely a prominent man of wealth and influence in that part of the world. Because that's the group that was there. That's the type of people that were there. Uh, Understand this was not a a strictly religious group. No, the Sanhedrin Council was comprised of a bunch of people who always stood at odds with one another. But there's another group that's there. The Bible doesn't end there. And that is found in verse number 6. The Bible says, after John and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest. I just want to say, like, what are they doing here? That's most interesting to me. Those who were in high positions basically were this. They were able to bring their relatives into special favor. And I tell you that in the 21st century, nothing has changed, has it? That's the scene. With Peter and John standing in the middle of this group of people, and we ask ourselves here, how, as all those people, if history shows us, they all opposed each other, they all hated each other, but now they come all under against John and Peter for preaching and teaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection, for doing a good thing, a good deed, and we ask, what brings all of those people together? I'll tell you what brings all of them together, unbelief. Opposing the gospel. 
opposing the name of Jesus Christ being taught and preached, that is what they have in common. Those people who would say, look, all these people are different and often the world will say, ah, you Christians, you don't have any personality. You need Christianity as a crutch to life. You're all kind of in the same. You all look the same and smell the same and act the same. And we look at the variety in the world. Look at all the people and how different they are. And I tell the world, you're all the same. And you're unbelief. You all oppose the gospel. The world in its entirety has unbelief common and they all look the same. They may deny different things about the gospel, but they are all in this ancient condition of unbelief. What was interesting in Luke 23, 12, when Jesus Christ, remember, was being dealt with, the Bible says in Luke 23, 12, and the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, and the rest of the verse says, for before they were at enmity between themselves. So what brought Pilate and Herod together who were enemies before, but now they're made friends? I'll tell you who did. Christ. They hated each other. However, they became friends when it came to opposing Christ. And we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22... Paul is preaching, is teaching about the preaching of the gospel, and he says this about the Jews and the Greeks. He says, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greek seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. Now we say, oh look, the, the, the Jews, uh, Christ was a stumbling block to the Greek. That is a foolishness, and I say to you, they are not different. They are both in unbelief. They may look at it differently, but they're on belief. And that is an ancient condition. They may go about differently, but they are together in their rejection of the gospel of Christ. So whether the Jew says, wow, uh, Jesus cannot be the Son of God. He cannot be born of a virgin. We do not believe in the resurrection. Or whether you're a Greek who say, oh, all of that eternity stuff and that salvation stuff and that gospel, all of that is that foolishness. You all have that in common. You're remaining in unbelief. So we find here, I believe we learn from this first persecution some wonderful truths that help us to see that here in the 21st century, we're not facing anything new. We see the con conduct of unbelief, the commonality of unbelief, but thirdly, we see the characteristics of unbelief. You know, people look at the Christian realm and they say, ah, look at all these emotional people. They need a crutch to go through life. Look at them, they're worshiping the Lord. Look at them when they're crying. Look at them when they're excited about the things of God. How foolish they look. You see, we are on the intellectual side. We, we're not emotional. We're, uh, you know, we are reasoned in our approach, and we believe in... And, 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 and that's the, the presentation we hear today, uh, that the, those who are part of the Christian realm, those are the people who are just you know, out of control. They're emotional, but you know, the world is just uh, steady and unmoved. Is that true? As a matter of fact, we find the opposite to be true. I want you to notice three characteristics of unbelief. The first one in verse number three is this, And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. I want you to notice the first characteristic is this, the pettiness of unbelief. 
I want to ask here, who is the emotional one? <laughs> Peter and John are simply preaching the gospel. They're preaching Jesus Christ. This, lame, this man who was lame now is leaping and praising God in the temple and the people are rejoicing. 5,000 people believe. And I want you to say here, see that the people according to verse number 2 being grieved that they taught the people. In other words, there is an emotion that is stirring within them. They are coming out of control. Why? Because these people have done a good thing. And I tell you, who are the emotional ones here? Who are the ones who are petty? Who are the ones who are chasing after a flea or hunting after a dog? You see, unbelief is always petty. It claims that what you believe is unreasonable and at the very same time they themselves do something unreasonable. While the people who stand and simply speak in response, they say they're unreasonable and then they themselves go about doing something that violates their own principles and their own laws. That's the pettiness of unbelief. The second thing we notice, notice is the pride of unbelief. Notice in verse, if we go through this whole conversation with this whole crowd that are gathered together, they ask Peter and John, by what power, by what name have you done this? And notice verse number 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. And notice the reply in verse number 13. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. You see how they, re how they react? Now the Bible doesn't say they didn't come to Peter and John and says, Oh look, you're ignorant, sir. No, they, that was the sentiment from within. I cannot believe that these fishermen are standing here and teaching the people. These are ignorant and foolish men. Uh, hey, uh, Peter, you come here. Where have you received your education? You tell me, what seminary did you attend, Peter? Uh, what, have you been trained by anybody here that stands on this wonderful council of people who are in high authority? Uh, who are you to preach? And you are just an ignorant man. And they were grieved back in verse 2 because they were teaching the people and because they were preaching to the people. And so we see here, what is it that they were troubled with? They were troubled with that there would be two ignorant men who hadn't been trained by them, who were in part of this great political class of elevated people, of wealthy people who had particularly favors in government who lived a high on, a, by, on a higher end than everybody else in society and they looked at these two in their estimation ignorant men and they couldn't believe that people were listening to them. Well, by the way, things have not changed. What, uh, why, why, what, what is it that, dis, that disturbed them? What is it that moved them? I'll tell you, it is their pride. They couldn't believe that two men who didn't come under their authority were drawing more people than themselves. They couldn't believe it. So why do they do what they do? Because of pride. You see, that's a characteristic of unbelief. Unbelief cannot stand when people's lives are changed for the good. Unbelief cannot stand when someone is doing something good, something that is beneficial for society, that is outside of them. They want to be God. 
They want to be the answer. They want to make the people dependent upon them. And so the characteristic of unbelief is not only pettiness, but also pride. But there's a third one, and that is this, the pressure of unbelief. Notice with me down to verse number 17. So they say very clearly, look, they've done a miracle and we cannot deny it. And notice verse 17, but what is spread, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus Christ. We have the word here, threaten. They threatened them. Now, they couldn't say, well, okay, well, uh, don't do the miracles. That's not what they said. As a matter of fact, they perhaps they wanted the miracles to continue. They just did not want the preaching of Jesus. They wanted the result without going through the process. You know, that is the world today, and it has not changed. The people in leadership claim, hey, we want a better world. We want to make the world a better place, and let's try to do certain things, but let's, listen to me. We don't want the gospel. You don't, open, you don't talk about God. You don't talk about Jesus Christ. You don't open your Bible. Uh, we know that that is not the answer. We have the answer. You just shut your mouth, and we're going to pressure you uh, because that is the emotionalism of unbelief. They cannot stand that the answer is outside of them. It is not... New to the 21st century. It has always been that way. These are the characteristics of unbelief. We see its pettiness, its pride, and its pressure. But I want to notice, lastly, and we're done, the cause of unbelief. There are certainly many things that we could talk about that I could come up with, but the only thing that I think in this passage that brought about this reaction is found in verse 1 and 2 and as they spake unto the people so as they were speaking the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them verse 2 two words being grieved uh, so we ask ourselves here why did these men take hold of Peter and John and put him in prison why did these men gather the entirety of the Sanhedrin council and even more people and put Peter and John in the midst of them and try to uh, cross-examinate them and see who they were and then to try to pressure them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus Christ and to just be quiet and just to go on with their life without speaking or naming the name of Jesus Christ? Why, why were all those things done? Why do we see their unbelief so petty and so prideful and the pressure that they try to put on? Why all those things? I'll tell you why. Because they were grieved. They were upset. And I asked those who claim today, well, the Christianity, those are all the emotional people. No, I ask you, who is it that was emotional in that moment? Who was it that was unreasonable? Who was it that tried to shut the speech of the other? Who was it that tried to get in the way? It was not Peter and John. They simply wanted to be left alone to preach the gospel. And yet they were opposed. Why? Because the class of unbelief 
that's this ancient class of people that crosses culture, age, societies, all in unbelief, were grieved that they taught the people and that they preached the resurrection. Nothing has changed. Why does the world make fun of the Christian? I'll tell you why. Because they're grieved that you are allowed to preach and to teach Jesus Christ. You know, there's an organization that's called the Freedom from Religion Society. So, well, we, we want to have a separation of church and say, no, what they're really after is they want to stamp out Christianity. That's what they're after. Isn't it interesting that those who say, well, we just want to be left alone to ourselves, undisturbed. That's always what they claim. No, no. What they want is they want to always impose their views. It never ends as let us live. It is always turns to imposing. Why? Because what we preach and what we teach, the word of God, the plain truth is this, is offensive to the world. The preaching of Jesus Christ, salvation and forgiveness of sins, is offensive to the world. It grieves the world. The world gets all stirred up, uptight, disturbed when Jesus Christ is preached. Now in Acts chapter 2, you remember, when they were pricked to the heart, what did those believers do? They repented. But if you read with me in Acts chapter 8, when Stephen preached, and their hearts were pricked, they killed him. The message that says if you come to Jesus Christ by faith, all of your sins will be forgiven is something that disturbs the heart of man. And man has either an opportunity to believe or to remain in his unbelief. But is, isn't it interesting that the world is never satisfied with, well, I just don't believe, I'm just going to move on. They always have to stand in opposition. They always have to try to silence the other voice. Saying, it's unreasonable. If it's unreasonable, then why oppose it? If it is so unreasonable and so out of the realm of possibility and so far removed from that which is right and true. As one of the religious leaders said, would say later, and we'll see that he says, if it be of man, it's going to go away. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it. <laughs> you see, that's why the world hates it. And so we find here in this passage, now we're going to look at the, the good part of it, right? That there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's Jesus Christ. But I believe it helps us to see here that this condition of unbelief is an ancient condition. Don't let the world and the voices of the world tell you, oh, wow, we're in the 21st century and just things are different now. No, they're not. It has always been that way, and it will always be that way. And why do we continue with all of that pressure that is, hasn't changed? I'll tell you why, and we'll see that next week. Because there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Why can we not cease to teach and to preach in the name of Jesus Christ? Because he himself 
is the answer for the world. Jesus Christ is the answer. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And may the Lord help us not to be disturbed by the world, but to embrace the wonderful message of the gospel, understanding that there is nothing new under the sun.